0: Uh, Nadia is an Egyptian Christian. Uh, In May 2017 she and her family were on a bus visiting the monastery of St Samuel in Minya, Egypt. She was travelling with her son Hani, her daughter Zoraida and her son-in-law Sami. Some men in military clothing shot the tyres of the bus and boarded the bus. Uh, She describes what happened next. My son-in-law Sami was sitting in the front of the bus. They turned towards him first. They ordered him to convert to Islam. My son-in-law showed the cross tattoo on his wrist and said, no, I will not, I'm a Christian. They shot him. The terrorists asked each man, each man on the bus to convert to Islam or die. They stopped next to her son, Hani. Nadia watched from the back of the bus. She saw Harney raise his wrist and heard his last words, no, I'm a Christian, and they shot him too. Nadia says, maybe you think I would rather have seen my son make a different choice. And of course as a mother I'm terribly sad and angry because I lost my son, but I'm happy that I witnessed the faith I raised him in. And I'm thankful that he wouldn't deny Christ even with his life in danger. He made the right choice, she said, and that has been a huge comfort to me. Now put yourself in their shoes. On the bus that day, Uh, would you have had the courage to stand up like Harney and Sammy? I wonder whether I would. I've got a little little Egyptian Christian in my scripture class and uh, she has had tattooed on her wrist, 10 years old, uh, the Coptic cross. Does the message of Jesus mean that much to you? Or does your safety and comfort mean more? They're challenging questions, aren't they? Uh, They're the sorts of questions that are going to be facing us as we look at the start of Romans. There's a lot going on in the letter. But in this introduction, Paul Mott wants to make one thing perfectly clear he's not ashamed of the gospel. Do you see it there in verse sixteen? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Gospel. That's a word we're going to hear a lot of over the next couple of months. It's a word in Greek literature that means good news announcement. Good news announcement. Like a messenger would return with good news from the battlefield after a victory. He'd bring a gospel. A euangelion. And when the biography writers recorded what Jesus had done during his earthly life, his death, his resurrection, they called their histories, not a history, not a biography, they called them gospels. A good news announcement. A euangelion. A declaration of amazing news. For example, the book of Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark begins. And then Jesus came preaching this gospel, this good news message about God's kingdom. And then he passed that baton on to the disciples and said, Go into the world and baptize and pass on that good news. And so now Paul comes along and he uses the word the gospel and it's shorthand for the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life that God offers us because Jesus has come, died and been raised. So every time you hear the word gospel, think of that, the message of salvation. Paul's not ashamed of it. But I wonder sometimes whether we are. Maybe the conversation at work turns to atheism or philosophy or evolution or same-sex marriage or abortion or scripture classes in public schools or about how all religions are the same or how out of date Christianity is and you're not quite sure whether to speak up or say nothing. Not quite sure whether saying nothing is better than saying the wrong thing. Certainly easier to say nothing. And so you don't rock the boat and you keep the peace and you say nothing and the opportunity slips you by but is it because you've been ashamed of the gospel? Maybe you think it's not effective, that it can't change people. But Paul wants to say right up front in this letter that sets out his gospel, the message that he spent years proclaiming that he's not ashamed of it. Because it's God's power to save people. He's seen it. He's seen it again and again. He's seen it in the hardest cases. He's seen it with his bumbling, fumbling, stuttering, fearful words. Humanly weak words. But God works through them. He's seen it. His words God uses to move people from death to life. All sorts of people. Weak, strong, rich, poor, content, disappointed, young, old. And we need to believe that too. Not just here at church on Sunday, but at work on Monday. We need to believe that. We need to hear it and believe it as we wait to pick up the kids from school on a Tuesday. We need to hear it in the doctor's waiting room on a Wednesday. We need to hear it catching the train on a Thursday and a Friday. We need to hear it standing on the sidelines of the soccer field on a Saturday. Not ashamed of the Gospel, because it's God's power to save people. But I want to stop for a moment and think about how those first Roman Christians would have heard that idea. It's 57 AD. Paul's been preaching for the best part of 20 years all over Asia and he's made it over into Europe but he's never made it to Rome. He's often wanted to go to Rome but he's never got there. For a start it's a long, long way away. Uh, But one of the reasons was that a few years before, 49 AD, so 8 years previous, the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome for rioting apparently or for causing riots and that included all the Jewish Christians. Uh, We can read about that in Acts 18 verse 2. Acts 18 verse 2 mentions it. Uh, So that was in 49. Uh, Claudius had died in 54 and he was succeeded by Nero. So there was a five year period where the Jews uh, including Jewish Christians weren't allowed in Rome. And so now 57. Paul too finally had a chance to go to Rome. Uh, But now Nero was in charge, Emperor Nero, in charge of the greatest city of the world, Uh, a city that ruled the empire with great architecture, roads, armies and engineering and there was Nero taking the glory for himself. He was Caesar, Emperor, he had a huge statue of himself erected in Rome. He claimed to be the equal of Apollo and the other Roman gods. He encouraged emperor worship. His tutor, Seneca, called him the long-awaited saviour of the world. Inscriptions on coins and in a Parthenon in Athens declared him son of God. Nero, son of God. And into that mix comes Paul, an ambassador, an apostle, a sent messenger with a message that's going to seem pretty uncomfortable, a message you'd be tempted to be ashamed of. Jump back up to verse 1 to hear about Paul and the message that he's not ashamed of. And as we read it, just appreciate the background to the title Christ. It doesn't mean much to us but it means anointed king. Paul, a servant of King Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the Gospel of God, the Gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through whom the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, King, our Lord. You catch something of the revolutionary, dangerous flavour of the message? I can imagine as the letter is read out in those Roman small house churches, people are sort of looking around you know, through the window. Who's heard? This Jesus, this obscure descendant of a Jewish royal family, the one the Romans had put to death a couple of decades before, the message is he's not dead, buried and forgotten. He's been declared by his resurrection to be the supreme son of God, to be the king. King Jesus was claiming a higher respect and honour than Nero himself. And Paul's message was, this king Jesus demanded a response from people. Do you see it in verse 5? Paul's job was to announce that this king was calling all people everywhere to the obedience that comes from faith. The whole world in obedience to King Jesus alone. He was Lord. He was King. He was Son of God, not Nero. You know, that were dangerous words. This was a dangerous message. Like Sammy and Hanny, who spoke up for Jesus in Egypt on that bus. It was the sort of message that would get you beaten up or even killed in Rome and yet Paul says he's planning to come to Rome and he's not ashamed of that message. Why? What is it about this Gospel? What is it about this Gospel that makes people prepared to risk their lives like Paul, like that? Well, the first thing to notice at the end of verse 1 is that this is Uh, that Paul has been set apart for the Gospel. Uh, Paul, uh, this news governs his life. It's why he gets up in the morning. It shapes his travel plans, his relationships, his letter writing, his priorities, his fears, his goals. Jump down to verse 9, for example. Paul serves God with his whole heart. He constantly remembers the Romans in his prayers. It's this message that drives him. It's constantly praying. Verse 11 to 13 he talks about his desires to visit Rome so he can build up their faith in this King Jesus. Verse 14 he describes how he's obligated. There's an internal drive that this message builds in him. He's obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks, to wise and foolish He's got a a burden, a fire for every sort of person. Verse 15, he's eager to preach the gospel. It affects his emotions, his desires. Now now Paul was a one off. There's no one before or since who's been like Paul but it still begs the question, what influence does the gospel have on you? How does the message affect your attitudes, your choices, your priorities, your goals? Is your life any different uh, as a result of the Gospel? I guess it all comes down to whether you value what it is you've been given. Whether the good news of forgiveness and righteousness and eternity and salvation is actually good news to you or not. It's like Catherine's kids talk, wasn't it? When when you've got good news, you want to share it. It'll change you. So Paul was set apart for the gospel. The second thing to notice about the gospel is that it's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. It came from him and it concerns him. It's about him and it's from him. So verse 2 says set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets. Uh, It's news God had planned to announce from the dawn of time. He promised it through the prophets because he wanted his people to be ready when it arrived. He wanted his creatures to be primed, like the best sort of advertising that actually makes you eager to try out the product. That's why it was announced through the prophets. It was a message that came from God but it was also a message about God. He reveals who he is through it and that's part of what we see in the third point. Uh, thirdly, we see that the Gospel is about his son Jesus. Uh, verse 3, the Gospel he promised beforehand regarding his son who as to his human nature was the descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Like the fanfare of the royal trumpets before the king enters the ballroom. That's the introduction Jesus received from the prophets. Then he was introduced into history, fully human, a descendant of King David with all the expectation that went with that. But then he's born, he, he, uh, he, he grows, uh, he grows up, he lives but then he finally arrives. He's crowned, declared in power to be the son of God at the resurrection. Declared to be the king, the victor over death by God himself and then enthroned to reign forever. Now the gospel's about that Jesus. No wonder Paul's not ashamed of that. What else do we learn about the Gospel? Well, it's not just news for a few. It's not a secret message. It's not just for those who happen to be in the right place at the right time. It's it's good news for everyone. It might have been promised by Jewish prophets. Jesus may have been born a a descendant of a Jewish king, but that message needs to go to every nation. There in verse 5 we read, We receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles or to call people from in all the nations to the obedience that comes from faith. Now Nero's armies were doing a similar thing. They were forcing obedience in any uh, nation they came across. But Paul was taking his message along those Roman roads uh, and calling for an obedience that comes simply from faith simply by trusting the king. Faith that will show itself in willing obedience. That was a message that crossed all sorts of boundaries. It didn't just stop at the Jewish border. It crossed national boundaries and geographic and language and cultural boundaries because Jesus is a big king over everything. Paul went to every nation because it was a message for every nation. A message that could save every nation. Uh, We read verse 16 before. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So we do see an order. Uh, Jesus came first to the Jews, to God's covenant people, but the plan was always to go further to the whole world. We see that in the book of Acts. The message began in Jerusalem, but actually finished up in the Book of Acts, with Paul arriving in Rome as a prisoner a couple of decades later, a few years after this was written. It begins with Jews, ends with Gentiles. But of course it didn't stop in Rome. So where where proof of it uh, the message spread from Rome across Europe into Asia, into Britain, to America and then even to Australia. Even to Australia. Uh, this message that Jesus is king over every king, over every rule, over every government. He is the king which is above, who, who is above every allegiance and loyalty. The son of God who conquered death and deserves your obedience. Now that that sounds like a message that should change your life. It should make a difference. It should influence your choices. If God really has sent you a message like that and presented His Son as King and Lord and Defeater of Death and then demands your obedience, then that's a message you need to take seriously. But maybe you're thinking, well, what's so good about that news? What's so good about it? Why should I give up my independence to anybody? Australians are pretty good at making that sort of declaration, aren't we? We don't want to submit to any authority. Parking attendants? No, thank you, I'm going to park wherever I like. Lifesavers? I'll swim wherever I want. Librarians? I'll be quiet when I want to be quiet. We don't want to submit to anyone, let alone Jesus, who demands allegiance in everything... Being called to the obedience that comes from faith sounds like bad news in the ears of most Australians. So where's the good news in all of this? Well, let's just sweep through the passage again and and pick out some of the positive things, some of the things that will bring a smile to your face in the midst of this message of of obedience in everything. We'll jump back up to verse 7. Notice how he addresses the Roman Christians as those who are loved by God, called to be saints. A saint is someone who's been set apart. And the Roman Christians, in fact all Christians, have been set apart because they're especially loved. They're like the special cutlery and crockery that only gets used on special occasions. God's people have been set apart as special. As the letter unfolds We see that the message of the gospel is a demonstration of the love that God has, the sacrificial love of giving up his son. Uh, Being called to an obedience to a God like that who loves and sets you apart, it's not about squashing your individuality or or beating you into submission. Obeying a a, a God like that is, is a a call, an invitation to be connected to the Father who created you, to a relationship you were designed for. And human beings thrive in the midst of an obedience like that. We thrive when we obey God like that. Well, the second positive thing, the second good thing about, the second reason it's good news is that it's about salvation. Verse 16 again we've seen, it's about salvation. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Rescue is great news, isn't it? The offer of rescue, especially if you're in deadly danger. And we're all facing death and judgement. We'll see more of uh, the danger we're under next week, but the Gospel is an offer of rescue. The Gospel is a safety line that's dropped from a helicopter hovering above you. The Gospel is the lifesaver dragging you up onto his rescue board. It's the light from the search beacon that fixes on you in the middle of the night as you're desperately waving your arms in the ocean. The Gospel is God who calls you and loves you and offers rescue. Obedience to a God like that doesn't sound so bad. One final aspect of what's so good about this news is that it's about righteousness. It's about righteousness. Verse 17. For in the Gospel a righteousness from God is revealed by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Arguably, it's the key word in the whole letter. There's a whole lot of aspects to it. God's righteousness to do with his character. He's trustworthy and righteous and reliable. The Gospel reveals that about God. But it's a message that also is about delivering righteousness to us. A message that makes us right before God, that confers a right standing that acquits us, a message that changes our verdict from guilty to innocent. There's nothing quite like the relief and joy of a restored relationship, is there? When a relationship is broken between two best friends or a husband and a wife, but then there's the tough conversation and the tears and the apologies and the forgiveness the hug or the handshake and there's a new beginning and there's a relief there isn't there and a joy and everything's right in the world that's what we get in the gospel righteousness is given righteousness before the God who made us And it comes simply through trusting him, trusting the trustworthy one, having faith in the faithful one, relying on the reliable one, the one who promises to make us right, to save us and love us. That's great news, isn't it? It's news that changes people. It changed me. I was about 15, I knew all the facts. For as long as I could remember I never doubted that they were true. But one night, lying in bed, it just all clicked. God opened my eyes and I believed it, not here but here. And I got to the end of my rope of trying to live up to God's standards. I turned from my sin and my self-reliance and my pride and. I just said, I give up, God, I I can't do it. You're going to have to do it. And he saved me and he made me right. He made me righteous and he showed me his love. God did it for me, he can do it for you. So don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, what amazing news uh, that you would set us apart and love us and make us righteous, uh, that in Jesus uh, you would be declaring him the victor over sin and death and judgement. May we not be ashamed of that news. Amén.